Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Hello and welcome. I'm Joanne Perry and today we are welcoming Father Harry Burry. Father Harry J. Burry is a Catholic priest who has been 60 three years of a Catholic priest, amazingly so, and has traveled the world and has educated people throughout the world in the Far East, in the Middle East, India, Philippines, Africa, Palestine, and even Jerusalem, right? And Brazil. And Brazil, wow. <laughs> His travels have gone over 60 years. His lifelong dedication is to interact lovingly with citizens of the world in pursuit of peace and nonviolence. I want to quickly note that currently Father Harry is leading a new project. It's called Twin Cities Nonviolent. I'm going to read their vision, which is intention to reduce suffering in the world by challenging the unjust and oppressive social structures and by promoting peace with justice and equality and dignity for all. Currently in September of 2018, this group, the Twin Cities Nonviolence, is, has an initiative called 10 Days Free from Violence. We are so delighted to have you here, Father. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Father, Harry's life is basically a series of stories. He has been kidnapped at gunpoint in Gaza. He's been arrested at the Pentagon. He was chained to the U.S. Embassy in what was called Saigon, is now Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, he served at the side of Mother Teresa and has actually taught all over the world. He has a Ph.D. in organizational behavior. And he's the author of two books, one of which is coming out in September. But the first is An Invitation to Think and Feel Differently in the New Millennium, and also Maverick Priest, A Story of Life on the Edge, that will be released in September of 2018. You've come to our podcast about extraordinary people doing extraordinary work, and you are obviously one of them. Why don't we talk a little bit about what makes you do the work you are doing, because you really are in the forefront. Well, I, I'm motivated by my love for, for Jesus the Christ. I believe that he came into this world to show us a new way of thinking and acting, namely by loving and forgiving and not punishing people. And so I think that's the good news, that we are all called to cease punishing and getting even under the guise of justice, and to really love and forgive one another. And in that process, we'll bring about peace. It's miraculous in one sense, but I believe in God's grace enabling us to do this, and I see us evolving to that place. We still have a long way to go, but we're in a process of evolution, I believe. 
did your commitment to active nonviolence come before your decision to become priest, or was it um, afterward, or was it kind of like a chicken and the egg situation? No, it really came afterwards, thanks to the students at the University of Minnesota. I was sent there in 1965 to be a chaplain, and soon afterwards, a number of students would come asking me to help them as they applied for conscientious objection. They needed a, a letter from their spiritual director that uh, they weren't just trying to avoid the draft, but they really were people of conscience. And so I began to write letters for these young men. They were all men at the time. It was, it was a draft that was going on. And uh, the more letters I read, of course, the, the more I studied it, and the more I studied it, the more I became convinced that the war was not only a mistake, but actually immoral. And then I moved to seeing all wars as immoral, and that's when I became active in uh, nonviolence. So the war in 65 was the Vietnam War, right? That's right, yes. Going back to that, once you realized your commitment to active nonviolence, how did that impact your work with the church? Did it make it more meaningful? Did it make it more difficult? Were there more challenges? What happened then? It made it more challenging because I, I didn't find that many of my fellow priests shared my perception. Um, Catholics in the United States made every effort to be as patriotic as they possibly could be. They wanted to, to be and look truly American. So they trusted the government. When the archbishop wrote me a letter and uh, was upset with the fact that I was wearing a red armband to uh, support the, um, the Milwaukee 14 that had burned draft files, uh, I wrote back to him and, you know, and I said, I'm surprised that you don't support me in objecting to the Vietnam War. I support you in objecting to abortion. And he wrote back and said, well, uh, he had to trust the government when it came to the war in Vietnam. Now, this was way back in 1973 or so, maybe a little earlier than that. And But I bet today... <laughs> Uh, there would be few archbishops who would be that trusting of the, of the U.S. government, given its position on abortion and other issues. I would think, though, that one of the major turning points for trusting the government and what the government said came out of the Vietnam War and the reaction to it. I think that we were naive before, and we lost our naivete as a, as a country at that point. I agree with you. Can maybe you can tell us about some highlights you've seen in your work about moments where we've seen active nonviolence change the situation, make things different. I, I was working on my Ph.D., an organizational behavior at Case Western Reserve University. And the professor assigned us students to do a research paper in preparation to learn how to do a, a thesis, you know, to get the PhD, a dissertation. And so I asked him if I could go to Vietnam and research how the people there felt about the presence of the US soldiers on their soil. And he agreed. And so I went over to Vietnam, and I had a small sample because 
I didn't speak Vietnamese, so I couldn't just ask people on the street. So my sample was uh, journalists and uh, professors and priests and social workers, uh, part of the intelligentsia. And what I heard from them was that in the beginning when American soldiers first came, they were delighted because they thought this would end quickly. But instead, the war has dragged on, and as it kept dragging on, they came to realize that the medicine was worse than the, than the ailment, so to speak. And so they asked me if I would be willing to find a bishop and 10 priests and come back and do a demonstration against the war in October. This was in June when I was doing the study. And they wanted me to come back in, in, in October because they were having a vote. And they said the vote was a mere ruse. It was, it was just a, to make the American people think there was a democracy there, but there was no question that two was going to be reelected. So how can I say no to these dear Vietnamese people? So I came back and, and I was a little bit encouraged because as I was coming back, Ellsberg had just uh, uh, put forth uh, the Pentagon Papers. So I thought maybe I'd be able to find 10 priests and a bishop, but unfortunately, I wasn't able to. I found only uh, two other priests and uh, a fellow student uh, who happened to be Jewish. And I wrote back to the Vietnamese and I said that, uh, we're sorry, but I don't have 10 priests and a bishop. Uh, could I postpone it until Christmas? And it was, I was right in the middle of classes, too, you know, so I thought, you know, at Christmas I could go during vacation, wouldn't miss any class. But the word came back, with or without a bishop, please come. And so the four of us went over on, on separate planes because we figured we were being watched by the CIA and the FBI. And uh, when we got there, then we were told that they wanted the four of us to chain ourselves to the U.S. Embassy gate. I didn't know when we went over what we were going to do. And I thought we were going to do it with some fellow Vietnamese. But they had just arranged uh, to be closer to the Buddhists, the most radical Buddhist group that had a couple monks had burned themselves. And they didn't want to hinder that in any way, that new relationship. So... They said they would buy the chains and uh, print up and translate our message, but we were on our own. So that's how the four of us chained ourselves to the U.S. Embassy gate in 1971. That's a dramatic action. What happened after that? They, when we were chained, the uh, official American who was in charge of safety there came and said, uh, Father, how long do you intend to stay? And I unthinking said, until the war is over. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, we wore black cassocks. And uh, I, I'm glad he didn't take me out of my word because I don't know how we would go to the bathroom, you know, <laughs> chained to the gate there. Uh, the cassocks hide a multitude of sins, but urinating there at the gate wouldn't, <laughs> or wouldn't look too good. But they, within 45 minutes, they had a big chain cutter and they cut us loose and um, almost threw us outside along with the chains. And we held on to the gate on the outside and then the Vietnamese police arrested us and took, me through, took us to the uh, 
police station. There they asked us, we were really interested in who translated our, our paper we were handing out, explaining what we were doing and why. And of course we gave them a answer like uh, in Minnesota saying Olson or Johnson, you know. Uh, we gave the name Nook, which <laughs> most Vietnamese, many Vietnamese have. And we said we only saw him at the hotel and, and uh, we hadn't seen him since. And I'm afraid, I'm, I, I must confess, we told a lie. Then two gentlemen from the embassy came, and uh, their job was to help Americans who get into trouble. And usually they, they help ones who uh, you know, get into a fight in a bar or something, you know, or drunk. This is the first time they had people like this, and I, I think we were a little over their head. But they managed, uh, they came back and said, the Vietnamese said they would let you go if you promise not to do any more protests. So we promised. <laughs> and that was my intention. Unfortunately, when we got back to where our Vietnamese friends were, they said, um, well, now what we'd like you to do is tomorrow during the voting, October 3rd, is turn over an American truck and set it on fire. Well, I wasn't, <laughs> didn't come there. Uh, expecting to do anything violent. And thankfully, Lynn Hirsch, the student with us, spoke up and said that, well, this has been on the television all over the United States today, and if we do something violent tomorrow, that'll negate much of the good that came from this. So the Vietnamese accepted that, and they said, well, then you do something that would um, distract the soldiers, and then our young people will turn over a truck and set it on fire. So I reluctantly agreed to that. When we went to the place where the uh, president, too, was supposed to vote, the streets were almost deserted. Very few people. But I had made a promise that I would do something, so I uh, started to talk to a few reporters. And they quickly gathered, because there wasn't anything else to report. And I told them we were opening an American embassy, people's embassy, in, uh, in Saigon. That began to gather a crowd. And then the Vietnamese police came. And uh, we ran into the UPI office, where the fellow there stopped the captain and told him, you know, if you come in here and take these people, it'll be all over the televisions, all over the world. So the captain thought better of it, and he left. And then a number of hours later, we snuck out and uh, went to the Catholic Church where most of the American Catholic soldiers worship. We talked to the priest, and I asked if we could come celebrate, you know, say Mass with him. And uh, he sort of said, oh, well, okay. And then I said, could I give the homily, what we call sermon, you know? Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> He said, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> and I said, well, I'd like to talk about peace. And he's, then he gave us a lecture about how it, things were so much better now after they invaded Cambodia. And they didn't need a lecture on peace. And he said he changed his mind, and we, we could say mass along the side, but we, we couldn't come celebrate with him. So then we went out in front and began handing out our homily, because I figured that would happen. Mm -hmm. So I said on there, if we don't give it, it's because the priest wouldn't let us. And uh, he came out and told us to leave. As we got out on the street, people were all in church, and the street was just completely 
empty, and I had an eerie feeling about it. And I saw a taxi about a block away, and I said, there's a taxi, let's run for it. And as we began to run, whistles blew, oh, and <laughs> we were surrounded by about 50 police with, with uh, armored cars and their guns at our heads saying, give us your passport. And so uh, we were arrested again. And this time taken to a jail that was not as clean as the one right near the embassy. And here they, they separated us to interview us. So I come into the bare room with a small table with a corporal behind it with a typewriter that looked like it was made in the 1930s. And uh, the colonel introduced himself, but he said, called me father. When he called me father, I felt encouraged. And he said, now I read Vietnamese. He says, what are you, what are you saying here? And I said, well, just saying that, that uh, we think that uh, the Americans should leave and let the Vietnamese work it out with their brothers in the north. And he says, you mean you, you want the Americans to go home and for the Vietnamese to run their own country? And I said, yes. And he said all kinds of things in Vietnamese and the corporal typed it out and we were let go. <laughs> That's a good story. And we were told that we needed to leave the country over the Obviously. next morning on the next plane. <laughs> so that's what we did. We've been telling stories about the early times as a, an active nonviolence person, and I'm struggling not to use the word pacifist. So why don't we talk a little bit about your views on the difference between pacifism and active nonviolence? Well, in my mind, there's no difference. I think... Uh, Someone who believes in the philosophy of pacifism is also nonviolent and may or may not actively do anything about it. Being pacifist means you refuse to fight, and uh, active nonviolence is also refusing to fight, but it might add a little bit of actions that would demonstrate that in, in a significant way. So I think of pacifism as a bit more passive and active nonviolence as more active, and that's why I use the term. Perfectly great explanation for that. Um, you, you spoke of your story earlier back in the 60s in um, Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon. Have you had anything recently? I was invited by the Patriarch of Jerusalem to come to Gaza, and they wanted 10 priests and 10 nuns to come into Gaza and be, and this is in 2004, to be human shields to stand between the Palestinians and the Jewish settlers. The Israeli government was intending to remove the settlers from Gaza. Settlers didn't want to leave but there's one million and a half Palestinians in this small strip of land called Gaza, attached to Israel, used to be Egypt, and about 8,000 settlers and their families. And it was costing the Israel government a lot of money to protect those 8,000 within this one and a half million Palestinians. So it was in their self-interest to remove them. They even offered the settlers anywhere from 300000 to 
$500,000 to build a new house on the West Bank outside of Gaza. And uh, the research shows that when internationals stand between conflicting parties that they tend not to shoot at each other for fear of hitting the internationalists. So the patriarch asked that we would come and, and be those human shields between the two forces. And the reason they asked priests and nuns is because if we were anti-war people, we, the Israelis wouldn't let us in. But if we came as spiritual people, we could get into Gaza because the Israelis were not letting many people in. And, and the people in Gaza are, are really kind of like in prison. They can't leave and they can't receive anything from the sea or from the air. So the only time anything gets into the country is through the Israeli roadblocks. So while we were there, one Sunday morning, we were getting ready for Mass, and in the door stood a very tall person uh, who said he was the police. I invited him in and said, have some breakfast. And he walked in, he walked towards me, and he said, could I speak to you outside? And I said, sure. So I got up and walked after him. And as soon as I stepped outside of the door, there were two more on either side, one on each side. And he, he took his pistol and he put it to my head and he said, do what I tell you or I'll shoot you. And they put a covering over my head and they whisked me down the steps and into a car. And they sat me in the middle and they drove for about 10 minutes until they came to a place where there was a, a normal bedroom type room. I don't even know if there was a bathroom to it. One window and one door and a bed. And uh, they frisked me and then they set me there for a bit. And then after a while, uh, one came in and said, we're going to uh, interview you and we want you to answer four questions. One, uh, your name, two, your occupation, Three, that you work for the CIA, and four, you work for the Israeli government. And I said, but I don't work for the CIA or the Israeli government. And they said, say it or we'll shoot you. They came back in, and they had a phone, you know, that they could take my picture and uh, do the interview. They took the, the mask off of my head, and uh, uh, I answered those questions, and I'm sorry, I confess, I... I said what they wanted me to say, and I'm not proud about that today, but I did what they told me. I reached into my pocket to get my rosary, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, my prayer beads. You know, that was okay, because they use prayer beads. And I'd ask him, are you, are you the police? And he said, no. i say, are you Israelis? No. He said, who are you? And then he said, well, I'm Palestinian, and, and you see me, I've been shot four times, and we can't get any medicine in here, and we don't get any food in here, and, and uh, we're showing Abbas, take us serious, that we can grab an internationalist in daylight and hold him. So it was a battle among the Palestinians. By the time <laughs> I was about to leave, uh, I was thinking that I could consult to them and help them out. <laughs> Um, but they told me they were going to move me, so they put the headgear back on, and they took me outside, stopped in the middle of the road, 
and whispered into my ear, go home, and ran off. Mm -hmm. So I slowly took the headgear off, and I wish I would have kept it, and dropped it to this pavement, and I heard children's voices in the distance, so I went in that direction, which happened to be a school, where I asked the people if anybody spoke English, and eventually got to the police. I have a question for you. Um, to me, it's, it's a story of desperate men uh, trying to use publicity uh, to garner sympathy or others to their cause. Yes. I know they used guns to threaten you, but you weren't harmed in the least, correct? Correct. I was not harmed at all. And in fact, they didn't even take my wallet. And I had about $200 in there. And uh, they didn't take my cell phone. So how do you regard this incident, their actions, is, as a pacifist or as a believer in active nonviolence? Well, I thought of them as neophytes. That is, I don't think they'd ever done that before. They were certainly not professional, even when they frisked me. And uh, I could tell by the way they were talking in their own language that they were nervous and they were young. So uh, uh, I, in the end, I felt sorry for them. <laughs> That's a good story. When you were a young man and you were going about making decisions, what sort of advice would you have liked to have heard? If you could give it to yourself now, what would you have liked to have heard when you started this path? I would have liked to have learned we're always in the process of discovering and nobody knows absolute truth, although absolute truth exists. I'm not a relativist, but I only believe that God sees the whole picture and so only God knows the whole truth, and we only know part of it, and so all our knowledge is partial and therefore not absolutely true. Besides that, I would wish that I would have learned there is good and bad in everything. Nothing is absolutely good, and nothing is absolutely evil. So instead of understanding that, what we have done is we have focused on what's wrong, rather than what is right. And so we focus on problems and with the idea of fixing it. And we put on pedestals people who are problem solvers. And so in order to be a, on a top pedestal and be a well-known problem solver, we got to find problems to solve. Uh, we have a society that focuses on the negative, what is wrong, whereas if we realize that there's good and bad in everything, then what would have really helped me is to focus on what is good and work at enhancing it and making it better. We would then look at life in a positive sense. I'd be appreciating what is and then making it better and paying little or no attention to what's wrong. I would like very much to have understood better in my faith was that we're all one. You know, that our separation is an illusion. Now, the implication to that is if we understood it and acted on it, then what's good for you, Joanne, needs to be good for me and vice versa, or it isn't any good. And so now we stop competing with each other and start cooperating with each other. Now, just imagine what the life would be like if instead of fighting with each other and competing with each other, we were helping each other. 
enhancing one another's life. Just imagine what that would be like all over the globe. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. This is Father Harry Burry. He has begun the Twin City Nonviolent Movement, 10 Days Free from Violence Initiative, has written a couple of lovely books, and it's been an honor and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so very much for being with us. I'm most grateful. Thank you. for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.